thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. So we have been looking at the passion of Christ's life. We've been looking at this from the perspective of Luke. There's a lot of details in Luke's gospel. And since I wasn't able to be with you last week, we're going to touch a little bit on what would have happened last week. And if you've been keeping up in your Lenten devotionals, you'll, you'll know what we're doing with this and where we're going with some of these things. But we're going to look today a lot at the mockery of Jesus. So what happened, as we know, is as John discussed with the kids, so the kids learned a little bit about that Last Supper, and, and they're going to be learning more about that and the betrayal that Jesus went through. And it was, it was pretty tough, because in the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus' friends, they first, they fell asleep on him. Then they draw swords to kill for him. Then they deny him and run away from him and betray him. And the betrayals are different. We know some of the details. In fact, we know Judas betrays him for purely selfish reasons because this kingdom Jesus was talking about didn't end up fitting what Judas thought it should fit. Judas never signed on for this sort of a thing, taking up crosses, dying so that you could live. It didn't sound very good to Judas. And he traded Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and soon after remorsed greatly and took his own life. But Peter's betrayal was even worse because he was the one that had promised Jesus that he would die for him. He would never, ever betray him. He would do anything for Jesus. Peter was the one that drew his sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. He was ready to kill for Jesus, yet soon after he too denied Jesus three times. Just as the rooster crows, Peter looks up and his eyes meet. He locks eyes with Jesus, we read. And Peter felt shame, as I know any one of us in that situation would have felt. And it was a difficult situation. And Jesus, we joined this week in Luke 22, starting in verse 63. He's at the house of the high priest Caiaphas, where he's being tried. And we're going to learn a little bit of unique, uh, some of the uniqueness of this trial, not just what it was, but when it was, what it meant, and what it shows us about our lives, and what Christ went through to transform our lives. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy who is that who is it that struck you and they said many other things against him blaspheming him when day came the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes and they led him away to their council and said and they said if you are the Christ tell us but he said to them if I tell you you will not believe and if I ask you you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Jesus is taken away and he's led there where 
Peter betrays him. He's in the high priest's house. And they probably had a hole dug in the floor where they lowered him down. And then they would bring him up. And we learn they softened him up over time. They, they talked to him. They had two different times over the night as we look at all the Gospels when they interrogated him. It is pretty interesting because we think of Peter as we pick up the story who's betrayed Jesus, was ready to kill for Jesus, and yet runs off. And we understand as Peter locks eyes with Jesus, he runs off, he's ashamed, and he's broken. The thing about Lent is we all come in broken. In different ways we all do, and it's that time when we have to repent in our own lives, and our own hearts, when we have to reconcile as Judas had to do and as Peter had to do from believing that Jesus is not enough, that we think we need something more, something we have to get, something we have to do to prove ourselves. There's something we have to do to make sure that Jesus understands that we've got it figured out. And what Lent reminds us is that's not the problem. We need to make space in our lives to let more of Jesus in, that he would have more of us. We need to repent and say, God, I'm so sorry that I thought that I needed something more than just knowing and being yours. That's what our neighbors need to see in our lives, in how we live, in what we do, in our choices, in our relationships, and how we spend our time, and how we spend our opportunities to interact with them, and how we spend our money, and what we post online, and taking the time and stop and really care for somebody else. Lent is that time when we stop, and perhaps that's the most important lesson as we enter into this time where the very religious leaders who should have been praising Jesus were interrogating him you see they lived in a difficult world just like us they didn't make any space in their lives for christ i think there's very there are very much parallels between their world and our world because people are still people our world is desperate and afraid yet do we make time to share the hope of jesus christ with other people we know the world's a mess and we wonder what kind of world it's going to become. If you're like me, you don't even want to look and see what the world is like right now. And whether it's in times of quiet or in times of unrest like we've seen in the news this week, these seismic shifts, these changes in our culture are everywhere. And our world has become a pretty unpleasant place where we threaten and label and judge and hate and we destroy the helpless so apathetically. We do. In the world all around us, we see what Jesus experienced in this passage. The world can be incredibly cruel. Jesus knew that. He is put on trial here actually illegally. You see, one of the Sanhedrin, there were 71 guys that made up this ruling council. They were both the secular and religious, the aristocracy of the Jewish culture. Though the Romans occupied their world, they maintained a lot of control and they did a lot of what the Romans wanted them to do, but they also wanted to have their own culture. They didn't want to lose their identity. The Jews had been through that in the Old Testament when they were taken off to Babylon and they were concerned that they were going to lose who they were. They had to keep everything under control or the Romans would come in and lower the boom. These religious leaders were really, really upset. So they break their own rules and they take Jesus in 
and they start to soften them up a little bit. Now, for those of you that didn't grow up near Youngstown, Ohio, let me explain this to you. You know what I mean by soften them up. If you grew up in a not nice place like I did, that's called putting hands on the man. For those of you who are just from Stowe, let me translate that. They beat on him. They hurt him. Now think about this. These are the religious leaders in Jesus' day. These are the religious leaders. They were there. They're at the high priest's house. And they didn't just consider Jesus a nutball or a nuisance. To them, he was a threat. And they wanted him eliminated. They wanted him gone. So they were beating him, trying to get him to confess to things that under their religious law they could kill him for, while at the same time breaking their law to get the confession to kill him. So the rules applied to everybody else, but not to them. I think we would all agree there are people in our culture today that have that same idea. I'm going to tell you everything you need to do in your life, but I'm going to do what I want to do in mine. Culture hasn't changed a whole lot since Jesus' day, has it? It hasn't. It hasn't. They broke their own law, and for obvious reasons, they don't want the people to know they're trying Jesus. He's very popular. As you saw when the donkey was here last week, Jesus rode into the cries of Hosanna, Hoshina, which means save us, Jesus, save us. Be our king, be our leader. Only you can save us. That's what that, when they're waving that palm branch, that symbol of Jewish pride and nationalism, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the secular leaders all get together and say, we got to get rid of this guy. We're going to have a riot. Everybody's here for the Passover. We can't have this. Enough is enough. This guy's not just some nutball, but what about people that say he's healed people? That doesn't matter. This is about us. We can't lose what we've got. How many of us don't make room in our lives for Jesus? How many of us don't make room because we're so afraid, we're so angry, and we're so desperate? The leaders make a pact to get rid of Jesus before that insurrection they fear would come. The Roman captors are watching them all around the perimeter. They will not risk losing their power, their prominence, the control they feel they have over their lives. They're frustrated. They feel threatened. Jesus wants them to be bowed before like the others. They want, Jesus wants them to make him the king, but not the kind of king they want, not the kind of king that they expect. They want something completely different from Jesus than what he's come to give them. He has a completely different idea, and they're not sure what to do with it. All of us have been in that place where we do something out of anger, out of frustration. I'm convinced the older I get that as a sinful human being, nothing good comes out of me acting, speaking, or reacting in anger, in fear, in frustration. Have you ever done that and wondered, what was I thinking? I'm sure you have. I remember my wife and I were fighting, and I was so angry, and she was telling me about something I should have done a different way, and I had made some bad decisions. I had, I don't know what I had done, something dumb. She was right, as she always is. 
But this time she was definitely completely right. And I was mad. And so I stormed upstairs, and I'd been working outside in the muddy yard, and I was untying my boots because we had to change probably to go to some church event. Have you ever had that where you have to pretend you're all perfect and Jesus-y right after you've had it out with somebody? Pastors have that too. I was a youth pastor at the time, and I went up and I untied my boots, and I kicked them off as I went in the door. And one of my boots hit the ceiling, spun around the ceiling fan, smashed the window, went out the window, and landed down on the ground where I had just been working in the mud in said boot. True story. You can ask my wife, it really happened. And I felt like such an idiot. And I thought, how does that happen? How, I couldn't have done that shot one more time if I tried a hundred times. How does that, and God, you know, I mean, I'm not, and so I, I looked at my wife, and this is kind of like when you hit the shot in sports or make the throw or make the tackle and you have to act like you knew it was going to happen. I turned to my wife and said, see, that's an innocent window, and look what I did to it. Man, did I feel dumb. I felt angry. I felt afraid. When you feel like that, when we feel like that as as people, as groups, as individuals, nothing good comes out of that. When we feel like that in our families, as individuals, as a church, when we react in fear, in judgment, in bitterness, when we react out of our need to have control, nothing good comes out of it when we feel powerless. What often happens is our primal instinct is to hurt something or someone, to control something or to feel in control of something. That's what sin does to us. We hate in our sin that feeling of powerlessness and the accusation that sin brings because we know it's wrong and so we react often poorly in that if we don't stop and bow our hearts to God. The worst of human nature is found in these moments and as Jesus is in Caiaphas, the high priest's house, he's experiencing the worst of the worst. Caiaphas has thugs who are beating on Jesus. Now, I know that's kind of weird to think about for religious people, and it was a turbulent time. I don't have thugs unless you count the elders who pass the plates as thugs. I don't. I don't know who, you know, Pastor Wally is not my thug. I don't have, I don't know who, it's like the nicest human that's ever lived, right? I mean, come on. I I don't, but, but yet these guys come. And you have to stop in all seriousness Stop and think about the fact this is God's son, the Messiah, the Savior, the Messiah they've been waiting for, and they start to beat him, and they start to mock him, and they pick up momentum. The energy picks up in the room. It gets worse, and they start beating on him and laughing and making fun of him. They blindfold him, and they hit him, and they say, prophesy, who hit you? The cruelty, the sin, the bitterness, it becomes a fever pitch. It, it reaches a level that is so heinous and horrible that cosmically, spiritually, think about what happens. The religious leaders have their thugs beating the very Messiah they're waiting for. As we read here in the Bible, the word here that we see, paiesis, the word there means that they, 
beat him continually without boring you with a bunch of Greek about the aorist tense and all this stuff, just trust me that what that word means is they beat him all night. Judging by what we see in our world around us, this should not surprise us. Those who claim Christ around the world are being abused and tortured and killed at rates we have not seen before. Do you recognize that? When you read about graves in Africa being opened and 6,000 Christians being found in them. When you read about thousands of Christians being carried off in the night in China and our media, our government doesn't act like anything has happened. Do you realize the world we live in where those who claim Christ, like Christ, are being mocked and abused? Carried off in the dead of the night, being beaten and killed under duress. But this has always been the story of the Christian church. It has always been the story. Jesus, as he faces this, he is the almighty son of God, most high. He could have stopped this at any time. We learn back in his word, as he's, in Matthew's gospel, if we look back there, Jesus even says, you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels when he faces. He says, I don't need you to take up the sword for me. I can do it myself. But that's not what Jesus had come for. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled and that it must be so? Jesus had come to lay down his life and he knew in the garden when he prayed, he knew when he was betrayed, he knew when he went into this that he would face all of this. He's so committed to doing what his father has sent him to do, even if it means he will be deeply abused. Jesus knew what he was committing to. He was going to be mocked. He was going to be beaten and disfigured. Look at Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was beaten so that nobody even recognized him. And this is not even the end. There was more, as we'll see, yet to come. Jesus knew what he was going to endure as he walked the road to Calvary. And because of that, he understands in our lives, no matter how horrible and heinous and unthinkable, what we have endured or what we will endure, Jesus understands. Whatever pain you're facing, whatever haunts your memories, whatever you're going through, Jesus understands how you're hurting, how you're questioning, how you're asking how can God let this happen? Where is God in the midst of all of this? Jesus understands all the sin, all the pain, the suffering, the shame, the hurt, the questions, the anger. He understands. And he wants you to understand today that if you have a question in your heart where you say, God, where were you when this happened? That he's big enough for those questions and he loves you and he understands mockery and suffering and injustice and abuse because he endured it. What good could ever come from 
what has happened to me? I hear that question from people all the time. What can God ever do to make this any better? Actually, a lot. Knowing that Jesus not only understands, but that he came and went to the cross and rose again to begin the end of sin and death and darkness should transform how we respond to suffering and hurt in our own lives. You see, we can experience God's grace even when we suffer. Peter, yeah, the Peter that betrayed Jesus, look what he says. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for if you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Not like us. We sinned. We sin all the time. And we break things when we sin. Like I did, I give you a silly example, but we have a choice to respond in God's grace or to respond in anger and violence and per perpetuate that cycle of sin. And Peter here says, no. Look at Jesus. Look at his example. When he was reviled, he did not, revi he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You're going to face trials in your life. If somebody tells you that being a Christian is supposed to be some kind of vacation where everything goes good and you get all you ever wanted, they lied to you. You want me to fill this place up? I'll tell you that whatever you do is going to make God give you everything. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise and handsome like me. I'll even get hair plugs. But that's not what God's words teach. That's not what God's word teaches. That's not what Jesus endured. I'm not telling you to be a victim and to allow somebody to hurt you. That's not what God's word is saying. But when you face things that you can't explain, that no one can explain, you have the choice to trust that Jesus can bring good out of those things, no matter how painful they are, because he is the God who redeems. We have a choice to trust God in the midst of our pain and in our suffering. We have a choice to not propagate the cycle of abuse and pain and hurt. We have a choice to seek healing and redemption and to, by faith, get up every day and make ourselves a better person, not in our own power, but in the power of Jesus Christ to transform lives. Jesus came to be far more than another a victim of abuse. He didn't come to do any of that. But in Luke twenty-two sixty-seven, the leaders who looked on as Jesus was mocked and beaten, as he was abused viciously, Jesus came to declare himself. He said, I'm the Messiah. Whether you believe it or not doesn't change when I'm the Messiah. And all they wanted him to do was say that. And they said, look, we got all the evidence we need. Doesn't matter. Maybe Jesus didn't even exist. Maybe he never really existed. Let's get real. The world we live in today is the same world Jesus lived in, where people abuse their power and they hurt people all the time. Hoping for one moment, like these guys did with Jesus, one sound bite. Would you just tweet one stupid thing? Would you write down, I wish, if I get just one thing you say that I can destroy you to get my way, that's all I need. 
Is our world today any different than Jesus' world? No. Please say something so that I can use it against you. Something that isn't popular, something that isn't what I want to hear, and I'll destroy your life with it. We see this in our world every day. Many people have made up their lives of what they think about other people. They want to label people. They want to tear people down. They want to destroy people. That's what Jesus faced. He understands the world we live in. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, hey, one more thing. He says, one more thing. You're going to see the Son of Man. Now, the religious leaders who are beating him under the cover of darkness, as the light comes, as they gather together, because now they've softened him up and they can get him to confess, to kill him, they're afraid. Because when he says the Son of Man, he's talking about Daniel 7. He's talking about Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. No matter what rulers come and go, no matter how they try to tear us down, no matter how they try to carry Christians off in the night, those who claim Christ have to remember what Jesus did when he was mocked, when he said, by the way, I am the Son of Man. And you know what that means. I will return in power. I will return. You may be judging me here in this moment, but I will return in all injustice, in all pain, in all deception will be swept away because I have the dominion and the power and the authority over all heaven and all earth. I spoke it into existence. You can take a word I say now, but I have the power. And I'm here right now because I want to be. Think about that. Think about what that means. That Jesus will come again, that he will sit in power and judgment over the whole universe. Look at Revelation 1.17. I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and I'm the Omega. Don't, I, was, I have the dominion. I was there when the world was created. I'll be there when it's recreated. And friends, no matter what we suffer through, no matter what mockery and pain we see in our world, like Christ, we have hope in something beyond our circumstances. We have the almighty, powerful God of the universe, Isaiah 6. Woe is me, I am lost. I have seen, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We serve the one true God of the universe. And someday every knee will bow. We don't just pray that prayer when we take the offering. We live our lives because that is a reality that will come to be true. The God that is exalted above all things, he humbled himself, but once again he will be exalted. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. That's the God who we serve this day. The God 
of all power, of all glory. When we see Christ on that day, we will shout Hosanna like they did when he rode in on that donkey. But it will be a Hosanna that lasts through all, all of the eternity. All of eternity that will last because we'll be shouting out saying, God, Jesus, save us because only you can. But we will not run and we will not betray him. We will never turn away because we'll belong to him forever and ever. So the question today is a simple question. Where is your heart rooted? Are you going to be like the religious leaders who root their hearts in judgment and in control and power? Are you going to say, God, I want this my way. You have to explain this to me. This world is difficult. I don't trust it. I want you to fix it right now. Are you going to, in faith, walk with Jesus and say, God, you have given me the grace to love and to serve. You have redeemed me. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. It doesn't make what's happened to me okay. It doesn't make what other people have done to me okay, but they need the grace of Jesus Christ just like I do. You don't think Jesus looked on those religious leaders that he cried? He cried out and lamented to them. He cried out to them when he talked about them. He told the people, those who are the greatest among you that have the power and control now, they're going to be made the least. They will be humbled, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. When Christ comes again, where will you find yourself? Will you be afraid because he's come back and what he said has come true? Or will you now lay down your life before him? It's going to be hard if you do. There will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be mockery. Many of you probably know the story of Corey Ten Boom. In World War II, the, in places around the world, no different for the Dutch people, they were hiding those that the Jews thought to kill. They sought to kill them with their evil view on the world. They had decided some people weren't worth living, particularly Jews. I've never seen anti-Semitism rise in the world like I see it rising today. And being blamed on all kinds of different people. If you would tell me there was a day in America when people could stand up and say that the Jews don't deserve to live who served in our government, I would tell you you're a liar. That any people don't deserve to live is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God came to be the Lord of all the nations, to have dominion over all the world. Corey Ten Boom and other Christians believed that, and they hid people, and they were found, and their hiding place was found out, and they were taken, and she and her sister Betsy and her family were taken to prison, to the Ravensbrück prison where they were killed, many of them. Millions of people died because they were the wrong ethnicity. How quickly do we forget our own history? And in that prison, Corrie Ten Boom, she talked to her sister Betsy, and her sister looked at her before she died and said, we have to remember this. We have to remember the good that God can bring out of this. Can you imagine being in a concentration camp and sitting there with your sibling who holds your hands and says, God will bring good from this. Yet Corey Ten Boom survived, and she spent many years traveling the world, 
sharing the grace of God, the hope of God, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, no matter what mockery or shame or pain you experience in the world, that Jesus loves you and wants to know you, and that he can even take your pain and use it for good. No matter what mockery or shame or pain you have endured, Jesus understands it because he went through it too. And in a Munich church, a little over a decade after she was liberated from the concentration camp, as she preached that message, a man walked up to her. And he raised his hand to shake hers in a line of people waiting to greet her after her message. And she froze because she knew he was the guard. Not just a guard, the guard who mercilessly beat and mocked and abused her and her sister and thousands of other women, who laughed as they had to walk by naked, piling their clothes in the floor, going in and out of the showers, who did unspeakable, terrible things to them. And she said she froze. She didn't know what to do. And the man said, A most excellent message, Fraulein. I'm so glad that you shared it. You see, I too have become a Christian now. And though I have done horrible things, I am so thankful that Jesus Christ can forgive me. But I need to hear it from your lips. Will you forgive me too? And as she sat frozen, Corey Ten Boom said that she asked God for the strength that if she could just lift her hand, if God would give her the strength to do that, and she could take his hand, he would have to do the the rest. Somehow she was able to do that after what seemed like an eternity, and the man shook her hand. And as she said, in that moment, I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. And she said as she took the man's hand and shook it that the most joyful weight was released from her. The most incredible sensation happened to her. She finally felt as if she understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't know where you have felt mocked, where you felt hurt, where you felt abused, but I can promise you that Jesus understands. And as you make room for Him in your life this Lent, There's somebody in your life that you need to ask forgiveness from. And there's somebody in your life, God always brings these up in our lives as we walk through them. There's someone you need to forgive. You may have forgiven them before, maybe you need to just keep forgiving them every day. Make space for God's word to dwell in your heart so richly that you trust him enough that he understands that he is sovereign, that he does have dominion and power, that what he says is true, and that if you trust him and take just that little step to pray that prayer, God, I forgive so-and-so for, that he does have the power to do the rest. He understands whatever you endured, he understands it. He's not excusing it. He's not telling you you deserved it. He's not saying any of that. But in a world where people choose mockery and control and destruction, don't let someone else's hurt control and destroy you. Live in the freedom that Jesus Christ can take even your pain and that you can love and serve him and that someone else will say, no one could ever understand what I went through. God will bring you to that person and you'll say, wait, I do. And I can show you how to move.
beyond it. That's how the gospel transforms lives. That's how the mockery that Jesus experiences in this moment ends up in the glory of the cross and of the empty tomb, as we will see. As you make room in your life for someone this Lent, make sure that Jesus allows you to let go of what's holding you back from loving and serving. Give him the opportunity. Release that to him. And let him show you what it means to experience the freedom of mercy and grace. If you know Jesus Christ, he's calling you to forgive other people. And if you have a hurt that you don't think he can use, he's promising you it's not for nothing. He will use that to bless and to heal and to help another person. And the funny thing is you'll feel the healing and the blessing yourself. Mockery doesn't last forever. The shadow of the cross is here, but friends, the empty tomb, it's coming. Let's pray. Father, that we would remember what it means to belong to you, that no matter what we face in this world, we have a choice. We can be like those who in their, their need to control and their need to oppress do wrong. We can act in anger. We can act in pain. We can do so much wrong. We've all done it. Yet you call us to a different life, to a life of surrender, to a life of humility like Jesus practiced, that he indeed shows us what it means to belong to a new kingdom of grace and of mercy. Father, that we would know what it means to surrender ourselves to you, to let go of those burdens that hold us back from loving and serving, that we would see all people as worthy of your love all people is worthy of knowing the gospel. That we would share the hope we have in Jesus Christ in all we do. God, enough with the labels and the hurt and the judgments. It's time that we were known only as people who loved and served and humbled ourselves as Jesus did. That's my prayer for our church and for everyone gathered here, for those who couldn't even be here this day, that we would belong completely to you. And Father, that we would give all of our burdens to you, that you would take our pain and make it a blessing and a balm for someone else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
amazing, so divine. Let's just start right there. Love so amazing, so Now, friends, go into all the world, render to no one evil for evil, but strengthen the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. Love and serve the Lord your God, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.